You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you would find your way to 1 Kings chapter 17 this morning, we're speaking this morning on basking in God's grace and banking on his word. So just that you know, this is where we're headed this morning, and I pray that it does make sense as we work our way through. First Kings chapter 17, we have been here for a while, and the truth is we will be here not next week because of Easter nor the following week because of communion, but we'll be back in this text the week after that um, trying to finish up First Kings 17. It is packed. There's so much here in this narrative. Verse number 1. And Elijah the Tishbite, who is of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, which is before Jordan. And it shall be, that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. Here again is the story of Elijah. His name means My God is Yahweh. He appears out of nowhere. And here again, and I I, I found this sort of theme going through the entire uh, book of Kings, the word of the Lord comes to him. And he is faithful to simply obey it. God has given him a message to the king. He proclaims it. God then tells him to go to a brook. He goes. And then he watches these grimy birds sustain him these ravens will bring him food. And so, as he's enjoying his continental breakfast in the morning and his light snack in the evening, look at verse number 7. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And so he has been watching this brook as the ravens come in. It goes from a stream to a trickle to nothing, to nothing. And in light of that, God says you need a new mailing address. Look at verse number 8. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Now, for most of us, Zarephath means nothing, nothing. But you ought to know that Zarephath is 80 miles north of Samaria, right? the capital of the northern kingdom. It is about 8 miles south of Sidon. And again, you're thinking, this means nothing to me. But understand already that now we're talking about a location that is outside of Israel, and not only is it outside of Israel, this is literally Jezebel's daddy's domain. Remember Jezebel, that sweet, kind, wonderful woman, right? 
This is where she's from. This is where her dad is from. This is in the midst of Baal worship. And I'm not exaggerating to say that we could call this Zarephath, we could call it Baalville in Gentile land. This is the most unlikely place for a Jewish prophet to end up. And now you're going to see that he will now be sustained by the most unlikely person. Again, in verse number 9, the second part of the verse, God says, Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Now, I have to tell you this, and I, it, doesn't make, it doesn't matter that I tell you this, but every time I read that verse, I laugh. And it's not because of what you think. The reason I laugh at that verse is because when it says widow woman, I always think about Louisa May Alcock and the book Little Women. Because my middle child, for a long, long time, had a speech impediment, and he would always say, for little widow. Widow woman. Widow Indians. Widow, widow, widow. Right? And so I read this and I say, oh, widow woman. But it's not a widow woman. It's a widow woman. Do you understand that? That I knew that was important to the text. I knew you'd want to know that. Um, he says, I have commanded a widow to care for you. Now listen, if you're just thinking about dependability, ravens would not be our first idea of being dependable for supplying your needs morning and evening. But even less dependable than ravens would be a widow from the Iron Age. Okay. Because from, you know, 1100 B.C. to 500 B.C., to be a widow, like it has been for most of history, was the equivalent of eking out some kind of existence, of scratching just to stay alive. It was synonymous with poverty. There was no government assistance. There was no insurance. There were no safety nets for these women. And so to say, Elijah, I've got good news for you. The brook is dried up, but now I'm going to have a widow sustain you. It does not make sense. And yet, this is exactly what God says to his prophet. It amazes me, the creativity of our God, how he takes care of the needs of his people. I don't know about you, but this is how I think. When, when there's a need that's confronted, when I'm confronted with a need, right away I think, okay, God, I see what you're doing. And I know that this is how this is all going to play out. And do you know, invariably, it never plays out the way I think. Ever. I always have a plan on how God is going to accomplish this. And every time, not, not one time have I been right. There was never a widow. There was never a raven. God didn't do it that way. He is creative in how he cares for his people. And so he says to Elijah, go, just go. Verse number 10, Elijah goes. Doesn't make sense, doesn't ask any questions, but he goes. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, 
Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And this is not unusual in a society like this where there was a lot of nomadic people. This was customary. If someone came to town, hey, can I get something to drink? Can I get a glass of water? That's not a problem. So he says this to this woman, and as she starts walking away, verse number 11, he says, oh, and by the way, can you make me a sandwich? Now, I don't know what Elijah is thinking when he asks for a sandwich, okay? But maybe he's thinking, okay, God, you have provided a widow. I see her walking to her house, and if you read the text later in the chapter, you will find that in her house there was a loft, a second story, which would indicate during these days that you were a man or woman of means, If you you had more than one level on your home, it meant that you were probably rich. And maybe Elijah sees this and says, oh, okay, this makes sense to me. Here's a widow woman, but she must be a woman of means because of her home. So as you're going to get water, hey, can you please make me a sandwich as well? Look at her response in verse number 12. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth. Now let me just stop there because that's interesting to me. Um, I don't know how she knew Elijah was a prophet of God. Maybe she didn't know. Maybe he's just a stranger showing up is fine. I don't know that if he if he was familiar with those in those parts or if he had like a jacket that he wore that said Elder Eli on it or something like that, going door to door. But she knows that he's not from there. And somehow she knows that he is a prophet of Yahweh. And she knows that this is not Yahweh's territory. This is not his locale. This is Baalville. This is Gentile land. And she perceives he's not from here. She knows somehow he's God's prophet. And she says, as the Lord thy God liveth. This is a bad time for company. Verse 12. I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. So not only does he ask for water, he wants a sandwich. And this woman says, listen, just so that you know, I got nothing. I am down to a handful of meal and a cruise of oil, and we're going to eat this thing. Think about this. Two sticks. Two sticks don't make a big fire. This is how minuscule what she had left. And she said, I don't even have a cake. Now, most of us can relate to difficult times, can we not? I would venture to guess that everyone in this room, unless you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, which I, I don't know, I'm, I'm looking, probably not. Some of you probably know what a spoon is, right? Or how to drink your soup properly. You do it away from you, and then you take a, right? We know difficult times. I'm sure there were times in your life when ramen noodles was where it was at, right? Ketchup sandwiches, mac and cheese, that's how we survive. You, you understand what I'm saying? We've been there. Years ago, I, I won an all-paid trip to Europe for two years. The government actually paid for it. 
right? It was the military. And I was 18 years old, and Kim and I were living there together. We couldn't live on the base uh, because it took, the housing was like three years of waiting period. So we lived in, in an apartment off base uh, on top of a, a, there was a German family there. And in their, in their attic, they had this space. So we lived there. And I was making the salary of a private first class back in 1987. Can I tell you, it was not a lot of money. I think we got paid twice a month, maybe once a month. And, and back then, things were expensive, like the rent was expensive, and then the telephone was expensive. To make a call from Germany to Ohio cost a lot of money. And we were just scraping by, and one day, I remember some friends said, listen, we're going to the bowling alley. It was a Friday night. Why don't you and Kim come? I thought, this would be great. I've been gone for a long time. And we knew that we were running low. We didn't know how low we were running, but we were running low. And so we said, listen... If we just have $5 in our bank, we could both at this time bowl one game apiece, um, probably have to share our shoes, and then um, share a root beer. Like, okay, we can do this. So back in those days, you had to have a withdrawal slip. Remember those days? Fill out your withdrawal slip, take it to the teller. And on my withdrawal slip, I said $5 out of my checking account. And you know you're in trouble when it takes a long time to withdraw $5. So she came back and said, sorry, sir, you don't have $5 in your account. You have $2.47. I said, okay, never mind then. We had nothing, nothing. But it was good, right? I mean, you look back on life, and there were times that you had nothing, and it was okay. We understand that. But this is not what we're talking about this morning. We're not talking about difficult times. We're talking about total despair. This is not hyperbole from this woman. What she is literally saying is, this is our last meal. I'm going to rub two sticks together. We're going to eat this. And we are literally going to die. Look what Elijah says in verse number 13. Elijah said unto her, fear not. Always good words. Hey, don't worry about it. It's okay. Now watch the audacity of what he says next. He says, go and do what you said. You've got this meal, your handful of meal. You've got this cruise. You're going to make one little cake. You do that. But before you do, make me a cake first, and then make something for you and your kid. Um, Now listen to me. I, I don't know about you, but if a stranger came to my place, and first wanted water, then a sandwich, and I said, hey, I don't have a sandwich. Not only that, I give you the, the, the most tragic story of my life, and you dismiss it? And that's exactly, oh, hey, don't worry about it. Go make me a sandwich first and take care of your kid. Uh, it's almost heartless what he does here. Now, listen, I don't know why in the world this woman, who is a widow from Balesville, would even entertain this idea. It's ridiculous. Why she even carries on a conversation with a guy who just totally disregarded what she said. We're going to die. But let me suggest, maybe because she was desperate, maybe because she knew there was no hope. Who cares? What does it matter? We're going to die anyways. Or maybe, just maybe, she realized that Baal, her God, the God of fertility, the God of storm, the God of rain, her God had left her hopeless, 
helpless, and on the verge of death. Because he didn't have any answers for this woman. And can I tell you something? That is the story with every false god. They never give you what they promise. Happiness, contentment, success, comfort, whatever, they will always come up short. Why? Because like Baal, they are deaf and they are dumb and they are false. So I might want to listen to Elijah now, whose God is Yahweh, because Baal has blown it. And his reputation becomes worse as the cracks in the ground widen because of drought. And then he says something amazing now. In verse number 14. For thus saith the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. Elijah says, here's what Yahweh says. The Lord God of Israel. The barrel of the meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. And she and he and her house did eat many days. Some scholars think up to two years. Which is an amazing story. Verse 16. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. And that is the story, or part of the story, of the widow woman and Elijah. Now, by way of application, just two points this morning. Number one, in this story, God's grace moves beyond the boundaries of his covenant people and embraces one of Baal's helpless pawns. I want to spend some time this morning talking about God's grace and basking in the grace of God. Because that's what we see here. This woman experiences God's grace. Now listen, if I were to ask you this morning, and many of you have been in church for a long time, you know theological definitions. If I say, tell me a definition of grace, what words would you use to describe grace? Anybody have any ideas? Pardon? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm old and I can't hear. Oh, amazing. I like that because grace is amazing. I can sing amazing grace all the time. It is amazing. How would you then describe it as a definition, Yvonne? Undeserved, unearned favor and kindness of God. You were all thinking that, right? That's what was in your mind? And when we talk about grace, what grace means when we say it is, it is amazing because it is undeserved, it is unmerited, it is the favor of God toward us. Listen to me, this woman was an outsider. She was not part of God's covenant community. She was in Baalville for Pete's sake. She was a Gentile separated from the promises of God. She was an outsider. She was weak and helpless. There was nothing, nothing she could offer or do. And she was dying. She was dying. And yet, the grace of God reaches her. 
it reaches this woman. And she joins the likes of Melchizedek, Jethro, Rahab, Ruth, in a circle of Gentiles who experienced God's grace long before Peter ever preached to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, these people become part and objects of God's grace. And this is our God. This is the God we serve. That His grace reaches us. This undeserved love and favor towards mankind. We're people kind. Ridiculous, right? Okay, we're going to have to change the name of woman. Let's call them woo. <laughs> right? Manual labor. That's got to go. I mean, it goes on and on. It's ridiculous. I'm sorry. That was just, I'm sorry. It's, it's aggravating. It's troubling. It's problematic. It's ridiculous. And our liberties and our freedoms are being just etched away from us piece by piece. The government starts telling you how to think and what to say, you're in trouble. And we're in trouble, just that you know. That vote was voted down for the summer jobs program. And in essence, what they're saying is, you are going to bow to what we tell you to think and believe. And we are not. But anyways, that's not the message this morning. Don't get me, why do you do that to me? We're talking about grace this morning, God's unmerited favor to us. I like how Philip Brooks has his acrostic when he spells grace, and you've seen this. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's the truth this morning. And what I'd like us to do this morning is just to take a moment and bask in God's grace. In God's amazing grace. Do, do we stop and ever think about the fact that I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way? The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. And as I ran, my hell-bound race, running headstrong to destruction, as I ran that race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And there I beheld God's love displayed you suffered my, you suffered in my place. You bore, I just slaughtered that. What's a great song? You guys are singing along, and I'm just slaughtering it here. You bore the wrath deserved for me, and now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. And too many times, we live our lives oblivious to God's grace. That God calls you, God has chosen you, God has lavished his love upon you, God has redeemed you and saved you from the wrath to come. We should bask in the grace of God. It's a one, it is amazing, and it should blow our minds as we think. We deserve nothing, he owes us nothing, and yet this God, by his grace, saves us. And we stand here today a redeemed 
people this morning. We should bask in God's grace in salvation, but there's more. We should bask in God's grace as he sanctifies us. As you read this story, God is not done with this widow woman. Um, Later on, he's going to bring another challenge into her life to call him closer to himself. And this grace that is shown to us is a grace that grows us. Right? Because the unmerited favor of God is not just in our salvation, but this unconditional love for you and for me continues in our Christian life. That, that, that this love that we don't deserve doesn't change even when we as his children do change. You understand that? Our commitment to Christ varies and wanes all the time. And yet, his grace doesn't. And it's in that grace that you and I have freedom to grow. That grace is not so that we sin and do what we want. God forbid that grace is to love us and encourage us and equip us and to change us and to become more like the Savior. We're safe to grow in this grace. John Bunyan used to preach constantly on how much, and he would tell his people, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And, and one friend said, John, quit telling people that. If you continually tell people that God loves them, then what will happen is they will do whatever they want. And Bunyan said, no. If I tell people how much God loves them, they will do whatever he wants. I know it's counterintuitive, but this grace is to sanctify us. This unconditional love is not to just to throw off, but it should draw us to him to say, God, you love me unconditionally. I change all the time. You do not. I pray that that goodness will lead me to repentance. That's the idea. We should bask in the grace of our salvation. We should bask in the grace of our sanctification. And then we should bask in God's grace, even the sacrifice. To this widow, here's what God wants from her. He says, give me everything. Everything. Now, now, I don't know, doesn't that sound somewhat harsh? Hey, widow, give me everything. You hardly have anything. And it is harsh, because she has nothing. But that's the point. It's nothing. The meal... The oil is nothing. We are talking about the God of the universe that by his very word spoke everything into existence. Everything we see, touch, feel, the oil is his, the the meal is his, the cattle on a thousand hills are his, the universe is his, things we've not discovered yet are his, and so none of it is anything. Give me everything you have. He says, and by my grace, I will give you everything you need. This is grace, and we never lose. God gives far more than he ever demands. Always, always. Therefore, there is no sacrifice too great. When God says to his people this morning, give me your life, And we say, no, I'm going to hold on to it. Go ahead. You can hold on to it, 
But Jesus said the person who keeps his life will lose it. Hold it as tight as you want to, my brother, sister. You're going to lose it. But if you give it to me, you'll find it. And I will keep it. And I will give unto you eternal life. We should bask in this amazing grace. And this morning, as we think of this widow, widow woman, as we this, I'm just going to call her a widow. As we think of this widow, man, she's been shown grace. We have been shown grace. Can we just stop and think about it and glory in it, the grace of God? There's a song, you probably know it, and I think, he, I think the writer here sort of captures this idea of grace for salvation, grace for sanctification, and grace even the sacrifice. He says, your grace finds me. It's there in a newborn cry. It's there in the light of every sunrise. There in the shadows of this life, your great grace. It's there on the mountaintop. There in the everyday and the mundane. There in the sorrow and the dancing, your great grace. Oh, such grace. It's there on the wedding day, there in the weeping by the graveside, there in the very breath we breathe, your great grace. It's the same for the rich and poor, the same for the saint and the sinner, enough for the whole wide world, your great grace. There in the darkest night of the soul, there in the sweetest songs of victory, your grace finds me. May we as God's people Understand that that's the grace that's been shown to us, and we bask in it. So, we see here basking in the grace of God, number two, by way of application. In this story, we see God's word is continually obeyed by Elijah, and then this widow leans all of her weight completely on God's word. She is banking on the word of God. Now listen to me. We in this room know far more than this woman could have ever imagined. We know more scripture We have a fuller revelation, but in the end, the way that she leaned her weight on the word of God is exactly what we do as well. We lean our weight on him. I was reading this week about Robert Bruce, uh, a great Scottish pastor, 1500s, 1600s. And uh, just to know what kind of man he was, he was preaching uh, in his church, and King James VI came in to listen to him preach. And they had sort of a, a strange relationship. Uh, James was more antagonistic toward him. While he was preaching, uh, Bruce, King James VI was talking with people around him and making a real commotion. And so Bruce would stop, and the king would stop. And then when Bruce started to preach again, the king would start again. This happened a couple times. About the third time, uh, Bruce completely stopped, He looked at the king of England and said this, The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel. It becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. Yeah. And guess what King James did? He shut up. This is the kind of man he was. A great, great pastor, theologian. And on his deathbed, the morning of his last breakfast, knew he was dying. He called his youngest daughter, and he said to her, I want to say this in a Scottish accent. Um, I, I know I'll blow this. I won't even say it in a Scottish accent. Ian, can you say for us, um, say for us, 
cast up the eighth of Romans. Like in a, cast up for me the eighth of Romans. Cast up the eighth of Romans. That's it. That's, that's what he said, just like that. <laughs> cast up for me the eighth of the Romans, right? <laughs> On his deathbed, cast up for me the eighth of Romans. And his daughter came to his bedside. And she opened the text. And where his eyes failed him now because of his age, his memory didn't. And on his deathbed, with that passage opened to that text, he began to quote Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he said this. He said to his youngest daughter, Set my fingers on these words. I die believing these words. My friend, this morning, listen to me. Every man and woman in this church who knows Christ as their Savior, we are doing exactly that. We are trusting our eternal souls on the very word of God. I die by these words. And somewhere in our heads, we are thinking of maybe John 6, 37, all that the Father giveth unto me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And we are banking our eternal destiny on the word of God. Do you understand that? What this woman did when thus saith the Lord happened, what Bruce did when he put his hands on Romans 8, is exactly what every believer must do when we say, God, I am trusting my eternal soul to you to keep and secure. Now this morning, I don't know what you're trusting in. I don't know what your foundation is in. Maybe you're trusting your goodness and your good works and your charisma and your church and your pastor or your priest or whatever or just hoping it works out. But listen to me. If you are trusting as your foundation anything other than this word, then your foundation will crumble and you will be swept away into destruction. There is no other answer than these words. And the believer today says, yes, I I trust my eternal soul. Do you understand the weight of that? Every one of us who knows, you are saying, God, I'm trusting your word. I'm trusting my soul to you. That's faith. It is faith. So let me ask you a question now as we bring this to a close. If we can trust our eternal souls to this word, and you would say yes. If you're saying yes, 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 the word is true, yes. Then why don't we trust our everyday life to this word? Why is it that when thus saith the Lord suits us, we shout amen, and when it doesn't, we just dismiss it? Let's talk about where the rubber meets the road, shall we? Because I know you like to hear where the rubber meets the road on this, right? Hey, husbands, when you want to be unkind to your wife, I'm talking to husbands who say, I'm resting my eternal soul. Cast up for me the eighth of Romans. Right? And I believe this word. 
then when you feel you want to be unkind to that woman, why don't you cast your soul in the word then? Like 1 Peter 3.7, well with them according to knowledge. Or Ephesians 5, how you're called to give yourself away to that woman and love her more than you love your own life. Because that's the word of God too, right? That's what my Bible tells me. Ladies, when your husband is obnoxious and you think, that guy's an idiot, and I know your husbands, they are. Right? But, but what the word says in Ephesians 5 is that we change the face of that and we respect them as unto the Lord. Oh, you don't know that guy. It doesn't matter if I know that guy. That's the word of God. When those children are, I mean, we're at our wit's end, and we think, this child is a spawn of Satan. I know this child is a spawn of And we just, we're frustrated. We, what we do, we cast our lives, we lead into the word of God. Bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke them to wrath. Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. When we live in a world where body images everything, and we're lying to our young girls about what it means to look good. And they're starving themselves and they're cutting themselves. Psalm 139. I will praise you, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. When you're tempted for sexual impurity in a world that is sex crazed and so, so confused. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Flee fornication. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. When you want to rip off your boss at work with either stuff or time, you're tempted to be like everyone else. You go to Colossians 3.22 that says, don't serve like with eye service while he's watching you, but work as unto the Lord. Right? That's, that's what the word says. When you want to be unkind to your neighbor because they keep on parking on your grass and their kids keep on throwing their balls on your property and the dog's running on my lawn. I just can't stand them. Yeah, Romans 12, right? 18 or so. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. When you're ready to quit as a believer because it's hard, it's difficult, it's frustrating, I've fallen, I, I, I'm sick, I can't do this anymore. Well, yeah, right. Galatians 6, be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. And when you come to the end and face death, we don't waver. Why? Because of the word. And Jesus in John 14 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive to myself that where I am, there you may be also. We must go to and rest on the word of God. And can I tell you something this morning? You can you can. You can trust this book, not just for your eternal soul, but for everyday living. Why? Well, here's a good reason why. Because the only guy in human history who ever said, uh, no man takes my life from me, no one. But I'll lay it down. And if I lay it down, three days later, I 
by my own intrinsic power is I'm going to get back up. And he did. So, if he was right on that, you can trust him for everything. Everything. You can bank on the word of God. And so this morning, as we bring this to a close, I would just say, first and foremost, are you basking in God's grace this morning? Now, some of you are lost without Christ. You have no idea what I'm talking about. You must be born again. There's no other hope. But, yeah, Christian, exclusive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not your goodness, not your works, not your religion, not what you think. It doesn't matter. Christ is the final judge. But for those of us who know him today, are you basking in his grace? Do you ever stop and think, God, thank you for saving me. God, thank you that your grace for me is sufficient for today. Thank you that when I fail as your child, you're the same. Thank you that even the sacrifices you call me to do, your grace is there. And you always give more than you demand. May that ruminate in our heads this week, especially as we look this week to Easter and Good Friday when we have friends and loved ones and neighbors who don't know that grace and need to know that grace. And maybe if we thought more about it and basked in it and rejoiced in it and were overwhelmed by it and truly thought it was amazing, maybe, just maybe, we'd invite someone to see it. And then bank on his word. Not just for your salvation. Thank God for that. My soul is safe in Christ. But every day of my life when I'm tempted to make decisions, I have a guidebook. I have a manual. I don't have to fly this thing blind. I can trust the same word that I am trusting my eternal soul with every day of my life. And so when challenges come and difficulties come and problems arise and it looks like the world's got an answer here, but the Bible says this, guess what? This is where you go. You go to what the word says and you bank on that. Is your trust in your eternal soul to it? I would think that your soul is probably the most important thing that you own. If that's the case, then maybe you should trust everyday life to that word as well and watch God work. 